Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mayor Willett testified in Ottawa at the inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And the mayor was there earlier this week, as you no doubt know. We did speak with Mayor Willett in February before the Emergencies Act was invoked. And uh, the mayor has agreed to come back on the air with us. Mayor Willett, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much for taking the time to, uh, to join us. Hey, no problem. So if I were to take all of those days from the end of January to the day or two before the invocation of the Emergencies Act, what's the strongest memory for you of those days in late January and early February in your community of Coots? The strongest... uh, Now, what comes to mind? Oh, I try not to go back there now. Um, The... The the feeling, uh, I guess, that uh, the feeling I got at the time was that nothing was really happening, that uh, we weren't getting a lot of uh, support other than we had a strong police presence. Uh, The protesters were pretty well dug in. They had uh, lots of support as far as as, uh, supplies and so on go. Uh, We were... We were, uh, as a community, the uh, I think the numbers that I used at the uh, commission are probably fairly accurate. I uh, said it was about a 70-30 split, with 70 being sympathetic with the uh, the protesters. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me after that when I said that uh, I thought it was domestic terrorism. Well, does that mean that 70% of your population are terrorists? Well, no, that's not. No, I know it's not. I mean, that's not even thoughtful. Quite, that's just a dumb but, question. But it was, yeah, it, it's a it dumb was. Uh, it was a pretty. In that part of February, I was uh, fairly depressed. I had just come through a, a little bout with COVID, and if there is such a thing, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a. You know, the reason that I asked you is, first of all, it provides us with a bit of a bit of context, and 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 I appreciate you answering it. But the other reason was when when you and I spoke in February, um, I just I felt for you because your community, two hundred and fifty people, it's a community of two hundred and fifty people usually are very tight because there's interdependence. And families grow up together, and they, you know, you know everybody, and it's just a, it's 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 a community sense. After you and I talked, I had so many emails from listeners saying, "Man, I'd love to live in a community where, you know, that, that's that size." And so, so there was a lot of positive response, but there was the discord that had developed in in Coots, and I know that that was really disturbing and distressing to you. Yeah, and the the thing is, uh, I think at the time you. Somebody asked me, will it ever get any better? Uh, there are still people in the uh, the village that don't have much to do with each other anymore because they figure... Uh, <laughs> the question I was asked at the hearing, what, what causes Western alienation? Well, you give me a, 
a clue, and I'll try and explain it. I, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, people who've known each other forever uh, got split over this, and it's very hard for some of them to let that go. Mm-hmm. So even with advance warning, and you testified to this earlier in the week, even with advance warning, and you communicated well, Alberta provincial officials, including then-Premier Kenny, even with the advance warning that you provided, the RCMP seemed caught off guard. Uh, but you were assured that the RCMP was on top of developments. So how did this all go sideways? <laughs> uh, well, from listening to uh, the testimony of Mr. Legrand yesterday, and uh, or day before yesterday, and... Uh, what I read in the situation reports that uh, I gained access to when they put them all online, uh, nobody anticipated or took seriously that the idea that somebody would actually block the highway and stop traffic and even though the social media from the group was saying that's what we're going to do, uh, there's a, uh, uh, I hate to quote the rebel, but uh, Rebel News uh, put together a uh, a movie, they called it. And in one uh, scene early on in that movie, the guy is in a cab with one of the drivers and the driver admits that, yes, we had this plan from the beginning. We just tried to keep it quiet so they wouldn't uh, wouldn't be uh, ready for it. And I think uh, the intelligence uh, that the uh, RCMP was depending on just didn't take it seriously. And then once it happens, you're playing catch-up from then on. Yeah. Did you ever have the sense that uh, the size of your community, or lack of size of your community, might have been an, might have impacted in all of this? So it's a small place. Who's going to go there? I don't know. I'm just, this is just off off the top of my head. Well, the the thing that I I even mentioned this to uh, uh, one of the protest organizers, or well, one of the protest leaders later. They didn't organize so much as they got out in front and people followed them. But uh, the, nobody considered Coots. Mm-hmm. As far as the guys that were blocking the highway, they didn't really stop to think what they were doing to our community by cutting us off like that. And uh, I've said before, you can drive by here, a lot of people do, and don't even know there's a town here because we're we're just off to the the west of the highway and everybody's getting their papers ready and getting ready to hit the border and a lot of people don't even know there's a town here. So I think in the grand scheme of things, we just kind of got forgotten. And then, uh, oh, yeah, well, I guess we should make it so you can get in and out. Yeah, I just sort of, it just occurred to me that somebody maybe along the way said, Coots, where is that? And, and, and you really, it was so significant because you had warned them you had told them, you told Premier Kenny, you told the federal officials, the provincial officials, hey, we're here, pay attention, uh, there's word they're coming here, so pay attention to us, and then they were, they kicked the can sideways. Mr. Mayor, 
Um, so you're 250 residents in Coots, and you said people could drive by and not even know that your community's there if they're paying attention to going across the border. But you had hundreds, do I have this correct? You had hundreds of semi-trucks blocking roads in and out of the United States. Must have been, this is probably not necessary to say, total chaos. Uh, it was uh, what, chaos. I'm not sure it was uh, chaos so much as it was just a feeling of being, I, I've called it being held hostage because uh, we were being prevented for the most part of, you know, we were being prevented free, uh, uh, free movement and held for a reason, you know, so... It's like being a hostage. You were given, uh, you could run out and come back again, but uh, still that presence was there. And and it just, uh, well, like we already talked about, it was uh, fraying on the nerves. Yeah. Let me come back to something you said a few minutes ago, the term you used, and, and I think you said it at the inquiry. In fact, it was brought up, domestic terrorists. You were asked about that. Um, what was the context about that particular term? And you weren't going to call anyone a domestic terrorist at Coots in February. That could have been dangerous to do. Um, so what's the context? Well, the, the context is if you, like I said in the hearing, I'm a Google lawyer. I'm not a lawyer by any means. I, I spend a lot of time online because... That's the nature of who I am. But uh, the definition that the government of Canada has on their government website of domestic terrorism is when an action is threatening or actually doing what this this blockade was doing. It was stopping international trade. It's affecting the actual... Uh, well-being of the province and of the country. And that is, the, by definition, that is domestic terrorism. And I know that people probably, I mean, they wouldn't think of themselves as terrorists, but they fit the definition. The question of guns. Were there guns? You address that. Would you share that with mm-hmm. us? Sure. Uh, the raid on the uh, residents and the two RV trailers went down early hours of the 14th of February. Uh, earlier the, the, uh, on the 13th, there had been a, uh, a confrontation up at Smugglers, which is where the blockade was. Uh, a couple of vehicles had moved and uh, the RCMP officer in a car got, felt threatened by one of the big tractors, which you understand. And uh, so the, there was a mass movement of uh, RCMP vehicles down to smugglers. And at the time, my wife and I were standing out on the back deck, which it was mild in February, and uh, watched the vehicles go by our house on the way to smugglers. Looked up overhead, and there was a couple of fixed-wing aircraft circling, and I said, well, that's weird. And uh, then didn't think anything more about it. But at about 1 o'clock, or so, I'm not sure the exact time, shortly after midnight, uh, the RCMP did move in and raid. 
uh, neighbors saw guys in full SWAT uniforms and were told to get back in their houses. Uh, there was a field hospital set up at the fire hall, and it was a very serious police raid on the residents to make sure that uh, if there were firearms, that they weren't used. And sure enough, they found a cache of firearms there, and everybody's seen the pictures and read the stories about that. Yeah. I'm sorry to, to drag you through testimony you already gave earlier in the week, but it's it's so central to this whole question about whether the Emergencies Act was uh, was required. Now, protesters were leaving Coots before the Emergencies Act was invoked by the federal government, and you don't believe the EA was really necessary at that point, but you do believe... I hope I have this correctly, that the province and the federal government should have acted earlier to clear the blockades in and around Coots. I mean, that's just deductive reasoning. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult to know for sure because a lot of it will come out in court later probably what the RCMP were holding off for. If they knew that these guns and these people were there and they were waiting until they could get it all set up and get them in, in a single location. Maybe that's why it seemed to be taking forever to get anything to happen. But uh, the fact that the, the guns were found on the 14th and uh, the people in the blockade, the original protesters decided that was time to move, uh, that uh, it was getting really serious. Um I I don't know. I don't believe in coincidences, but uh, if that hadn't happened, from what I've heard from, again, from uh, YouTube posts and, and Facebook posts and so on, the protesters weren't ready to go home on the 14th or 15th if they hadn't had this trigger event that, uh, bad use of words, but uh, if they hadn't had this event <laughs> it's clever. that um, made it... Uh, a whole different uh, feeling. Let me ask you one more question. Tow okay. trucks have been central to so much of discussion, whether it's the city of Ottawa, and now the tow truck issue has come up as far as Coots is concerned, and there were the stories, and, and I mean, you're clearly totally aware of this, that 100-plus tow truck operators had refused to engage in clearing the roadblocks in and around Coots. All right, so... May I assume that happened, and was that surprising to you? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I understand if you're running a business, you don't want to uh, try and keep it cleaner. This is the radio. Uh, you don't want to uh, upset a large portion of your clientele. Uh if somebody's going to call a, a tow truck and you've been seen to be against them, they won't call you. And uh, it, it's a very, you know, there's only so many, so many trucks and so many truckers. And uh, even, uh, I mean, there were a lot of truckers that were actually trucking and, uh, they might have been sympathetic to the cause as well. So if if you're running a business and your business depends on a truck company calling you for work and all of a sudden they're not going to do it because of your stance, uh, 
you reconsider. You just say, well, no, I can't do that. Yeah, look after you have to look after your your own affairs. I was just thinking as you were talking and we're wrapping up here, Mayor, thank you so much again for the time. But I was thinking if somebody a year ago today had suggested to you this kind of scenario was possible, you probably would have sent them for evaluation. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking about that. Uh, I think you and I have got uh, about 150 years between us, and uh, <laughs> we've seen a lot of stuff. Yeah, we have. It, it never fails, though. The, the sun comes up tomorrow, and something yeah. new is going to happen. So. All right. Uh, the judge in Calgary delivered her verdict in the trial of the individual charged with murder in the death of Calgary Police Sergeant Andrew Harnett. Not guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter. This, at the time, um, he was a, a young offender before his 18th birthday. We can't mention his name, and that's just the law. Young offender reality is in play. Sentencing is, is ahead, and we can't speculate as to what sentencing should be. That's also the law. I've spoken on a number of occasions on this program and recently with Jason Harnett, who's the, the brother of uh, Sergeant Andrew Harnett, and Jason is back with us. So, Jason, thank you uh, for, for joining us. I can't, I can't imagine what the last few days have been like for you and your family, but I have experienced in the past speaking with Canadians who were dismayed at a judgment that was delivered by, by a court in this country. Um, how are you? Hi, Roy. I, I think, um, we're calmed down a little bit. Um, Thursday was, um, very emotional. I think we left, uh, after hearing, uh, over two, uh, a half, two and a half hours of, um, ruling pretty stunned, um, pretty deflated, uh, obviously, uh, quite upset. Um, uh, but as I said, uh, we had a good Remembrance Day. Um, my mom, you know, took part in the ceremony here in town and was the Silver Cross mom. So I, I think that was good for us and helped pick us up a little bit. But uh, yeah, life has to go on. I, I saw a post this morning, and uh, I see a lot of posts from people, and uh, I appreciate all of those messages of support and, and shared frustration out there. But uh, this post kind of hit me. It, it, it just said that Andrew wouldn't have wanted people that he cared about being con- totally consumed with something that is beyond our control. Uh, he simply wouldn't have. And, uh, yeah, I, I get that totally. I understand that. Um, but I also think that a lot of people have become very complacent. And uh, that's what I w- I w- I'd like to see change. Remind us who your brother was. Well, he was a great guy, um, a person who wanted to be a police officer his entire life, um, loved life, loved new experiences, always uh, was there to help people out, always there to try different things, loved his music, uh, was going to be a dad, um, loved living out west, uh, loved coming home and visiting his family and staying in touch with us, and uh, so much potential. He uh, he was on his way up, and uh, he was a guy that... Uh, really didn't try to draw attention. He, he, I think people were just drawn to him. Mm-hmm. The uh, Everything I know about your brother, from what you've told me and what I've read, and certainly reading some of the uh, tweets from the Calgary police, and they uh, they are confident that there's more to come as far as this case is concerned, maybe on appeal and beyond. 
Um, but everything I've read about you and know about your brother, he really was a remarkable, remarkable person. Now, the lawyer for the accused argued in court that his client was guilty of manslaughter, but uh, but not murder, and that's what the judge agreed to. And the and and the the, the judge, uh, this individual testified he was afraid when he saw your brother Andrew reach for his gun. That was his testimony. The judge agreed that the charged individual had outright lied. Quote unquote about fear of your brother and his gun, but ruled she didn't believe the accused was knew, uh, knew uh, what he did would most likely lead to your brother's death. That's all speculation. But the reality is there's a manslaughter conviction now, and there's sentencing coming up in, in January, or, or at least in, in the new year. Um, where, do you, where do you think this is now going to go? Jason. Well, I think um, a lot of what you said, uh, I, I, the judge believed that to be all concocted and even stated so, you know, during her ruling. Uh, and I would say uh, three quarters into the ruling, everyone thought it was going to be a guilty plea, uh, a guilty uh, finding rather. And uh, uh, there was a almost a complete 360 right near the end um, where, again, she, you know, went back to the reasonable doubt clause and... Uh, um, when there's a reasonable doubt, it has to be in the favor of the accused. And uh, she believed that he didn't realize the consequences of his actions would lead ultimately to Andrew's death. Um, you know, I, I think that people that have listened to the facts, um, have read the facts, um, would would argue against that. Um, uh, you know, some of the key some of the key points in this is, is there was a struggle. Um, he was trying to escape, obviously, um, but people really need to know that uh, this was lawful. Andrew commanded the driver to stop six times. The car uh, fled eventually with Andrew on it, pinned down. There was a struggle. They were fighting. Uh, he was pushed. The door swung open. The assailant kicked the door while Andrew was hanging on. Please keep in mind that the car was going 90 kilometers an hour to its resting spot of 427 meters down a busy stretch of Calgary Roadway. Once they finally began swerving and got Andrew off the car, he was struck by an oncoming car, pulled under the undercarriage, and he was left there by the three of them. The third passenger, which the accused continually denies that he knew who he was, so, I mean, all of those facts in front of everyone, the judge, and uh, no, no guilty uh, finding a first degree. It's very difficult. Um, so the next steps, um, I think that's hard, too, because it continues to drag out. Um, the next steps are, are really to come back to court in maybe two months' time to decide whether this will be an adult sentence or a youth a sentence. I think this is going to be pivotal. Uh, then, then after that, they'll finally come around to the sentencing, which the judge mentioned she likely won't be available until uh, May to deliver yeah, that. So now you have to wait more yeah. months, months longer. Um, and it was a completely, it was a New Year's Eve traffic stop, right? That's what it was. New Year's Eve, yeah. And the other uh, front seat passenger, or the passenger, the front seat passenger, right. uh, he pled guilty to manslaughter, and he he served some years. And that's correct. He, yeah. he he's I believe he's still in prison, but um, 
you know, the sentence was not very harsh there in that case either. And uh, the more time uh, anyone serves, um, you know, time being held, they get uh, equivocally a day and a half against their ultimate sentence. Yeah. And uh, I think that this, uh, it'll be very important to find out whether it'll be an adult or youth sentence, um, because this could be the matter of uh, this guy um, going to jail for a few years or essentially walking out of the courtroom, I think, come May. Your brother, Andrew, left a wife and a young child. Yeah, I mean, he didn't uh, get the chance to uh, get to know his son. Um, I think I told you last um, that the the family found out that he was going to be a dad um, probably about six days before uh, he died. Um, It was a big surprise. Uh, um, You know, we received a letter and... And uh, it was a big announcement. My mom was just so happy. And then yeah. it went from that oh my God. You know, sheer happiness to just uh, an entirely changed life for everyone. We've spoken with Eric Edmondson, the CEO of Pivot Airlines, since really since April of this year, since uh, his crew was detained or arrested, charged, and then they were bailed. Um, but they still didn't get out of the Dominican Republic. And uh, because there were drugs on their plane and uh, in the avionics bay. And the, the crew uh, called authorities, Canadian authorities, and including the RCMP. But they've been detained in the Dominican Republic ever since. And uh, they've been threatened with death by prison gangs. Uh, last weekend with Raymond Hall, uh, Air Canada captain, former captain, and lawyer. And Mr. Hall said, Captain Hall said, if these had been U.S. citizens, they would have been released from the Dominican Republic within 24 hours because Washington would have given them no options. Uh, in this case, our federal government did, well, nothing. Inert is the best word. Eric Edmondson uh, joins us because uh, I received an email earlier in the week from Mr. Edmondson saying things have changed or are changing. And Eric, thank you very much for joining us. I understand that uh, things are looking positively for the crew returning to Canada, but there are still hurdles to cross, yes? Yeah, thanks for having me back, Roy. And, and you were actually one of the first people that I that I did reach out to because you have been with us the whole way. Uh, things things are, are looking better for the crew as it stands right now, but... Uh, in all things uh, Dominican Republic, uh, nothing's done until it's done. So there are some hurdles. We we uh, received a filing from the prosecutor that they are dismissing the case. Now, remember, of course, they've never been charged, so there's no dismissal of charges. Uh, they're just dismissing the case in general, uh, which means that the coercive measures, which is essentially the you know the the order that that restricts our people from leaving the Dominican and uh, and they'll get their passports back. So that that will in itself allow them to return to normal and, and get out of the country with the return of all of their personal assets and, and our aircraft as well. Yeah. I may have said they were charged, and I correct myself if they if I did say that. Um, so, so what caused this? I mean, last weekend we talked about the appearance of a video showing an individual uh, doing what seems to have been putting the drugs on your plane. Uh, what caused this development? Was it the video? Have you been? Has it been explained to you? It has not been explained to us. I got a call from our lawyer uh, around 9 p.m. Thursday night that said uh, they received a filing uh, with, with really no explanation. We, we've been very, very vocal. I think the video, uh, it is indisputable. There's a lot of political forces uh, in the DR of um, 
you know, trying to keep our crew in uh, in the fold in the investigation, of course, because they don't want to be looked at themselves. We do know there are some deals of people that, you know, may, may be implicated that, um, you know, didn't want an investigation to continue. Those are far, far, far above our heads. You know, they're going to do what they're going to do. We really don't care. All we really care about is that our people get home and, um, you know, we, we scheduled a, a press conference for later in November where we plan to air the video. Uh, we told the government of uh, Canada that. We told the Dominican government that. And um, at, at some point, it came back through the legal channels, you know, what has to happen for that press conference not to go ahead. And uh, we said very clearly, our crew need to be home. Yeah. Inertia on the part of the governments can re- really be changed. If, if you just point to the big light on the ceiling and say, that's going to be pointed at you very soon. And uh, <laughs> that's right. You know, suddenly they find themselves capable of doing things that, are, that seemed out of their reach prior. What's the, so uh, late November for the, for the news conference with the video, what's the earliest date that you project for the crew potentially being home? It's uh, from what we understand, the, the, the filing or the sign-off from the judge could happen as early as Tuesday now. Again, uh, wow. lots of delays and everything. <laughs> it, it may be a couple weeks yet, but it, it's, once it is signed, there's still a process that they have to go through to you know, remove themselves from the no-fly list, get their passports reissued, uh, go through a bunch of uh, appearances. So you know, we're thinking it'll be uh, a good result would be at, you know, within the November timeframe, First week of December would sort of be an acceptable time frame, but we're really hoping for much sooner because, of course, now they are, again, in a, an area of security threat. Now they're officially whistleblowers, and, and they know who did it, and the people that did it know that they know who did it. So, you know, we really want them out of this country or sorry, out of that country, and we're, we're compelling our government to move heaven and earth to get them back to safety here in Canada. Now, so far, they've moved nothing. I think they, they, they did have some action over these last days to push this file across the goal line. Um, up until now, they've had a lot of great words and um, no action. And, and like you said, I think they, they did get a little active in the last, last yeah. week or so. But, yeah. man, oh, man, it took them seven months. Yeah. And it's interesting, as Raymond Hall said, if there were Americans, the American government, Washington, would have given the Dominican Republic no choice. Uh, let our people out and, and and do it today. And we did have the opportunity, and I don't know whether it was you, Eric, or whether it was Raymond who said last weekend, the bilateral uh, aviation agreement, I'm not sure what it's called, but that sort of summarizes it. Uh, if, if Canada were to, were to threaten the Dominican Republic with that being somehow uh, revoked or suspended, and that they would uh, be looking at <laughs> hundreds of thousands of tourists not coming. The bottom, at the end of the day, the bottom line talks. Uh, absolutely. So that that's something we asked the Canadian government to do uh, several times since we provided them the video evidence. We didn't expect them to do it until we gave them the evidence, and uh, you know it, it points to a systemic safety problem in the air navigation or, or in the. Uh, in the bilateral agreement that allows commercial aviation between the two countries, it's it's there's simply um, you know a big gap of safety in the DR the way that they approach this to throw a, a flight crew in jail who reported narco trafficking sends a very clear message to future flight crew to uh, not look not report and the danger of that is 
you know, in, in our case, where the drugs were planted on our aircraft was exceptionally dangerous. Uh, the risk of fire was extremely high. It was in an avionics bay. You know, if you, if you were to pick one spot on an airplane, and there are hundreds of places where you could hide drugs if, if you really wanted to, if you were to pick the most dangerous spot to actually put uh, you know, drugs on an airplane, it would be the avionics bay. It's where all the computers are, all the wires, all the cooling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's an exceptionally dangerous place to have, uh, have anything stashed there. This is a disturbing, very disturbing story. And uh, it's been reported on in the Hamilton area in Ontario and perhaps some somewhat beyond. But uh, I want to share it with you. And I just fairly recently became aware of more of the details. Wayne Miller of uh, Waterdown, Ontario, which is just north of the city of Hamilton, the actual city. And I met Mr. Miller over, over the years, I'm sure. He was a, a gym teacher. And uh, he became a victim of a hit and run. And he died on the side of the road uh, in September of last year. So country two-lane road mostly, but it's very busy and heavily traveled. And um, his brother Wayne, I've been speaking to his brother Wayne for the last uh, few weeks particularly, and been speaking to a friend He's a former Hamilton police officer, traffic officer, and he's also a friend of of Jim Miller's. And there's a lot of things here, there are things here that are disturbing and questions are being asked about by Mr. Miller and and really by the former officer as well about the investigation. And I, by the way, I should tell you, I've spoken with the lead investigator of the Hamilton police, Uh, but let's talk to, uh, to Jim Miller about the agony of losing his brother, who was also his best friend, in, uh, in such a manner. Jim, thank you uh, for taking time. I know this is terribly difficult for you. Why don't we start by you sharing with us th- how special the relationship that you had with your brother, Wayne. Okay, well, thank you for that intro, Roy. Um, yes, Wayne was a, a, a special guy. He was uh, the big brother of four brothers growing up and uh, he, he always had to take care of, of issues and and he took me in his home when I was a young age of 10 years old and him and his wife were just married and they had me in their their home at that time so that that just tells you what kind of a, a man he was he, he just gave so much to this community of water down and uh, just a, a special, caring guy. Yeah, I've heard a lot of and, great. I've heard a lot of great things about about Wayne. So you had this very close relationship as brothers, and your your brother had retired, and he went out for walks on a regular basis. He was always fit and and very active, and uh, he went for a, a regular walk. And he was on on this walk on this is called Center Road. Yep. On a, on a, on a night in September, so. Uh, there was there's a baseball field, a series of field diamonds uh, in the neighbor in the area, and I don't know whether that's going to come into play. We don't know yet what the investigation will eventually show, but there was there was activity going on there when your brother was out for a walk. So, Jim, please tell us what happened. Well, you, you've, that's right, right? Uh, Wayne walked at 
Spenner Road. Actually, I walked with him every day, and Wayne always liked to go out by himself in the evening. And he used to walk to Flemer Center School when he was teaching. But that particular evening, he he uh, took a walk up Center Road, and I must tell you that this road was closed at the time. Yeah, I remember. And um, so he was up uh, watching kids play baseball, and then he was on his way home facing traffic, which there shouldn't have been any traffic, but there would have been the odd car coming out of the dog park or Joe Sam's park. And, uh, he, that's, he got hit and that's all I know about it really other than what, uh, one, one witness, uh, has told me about it. basically what happened. Can you share with us what the witness told you? He told me he heard a real thud. He was in his backyard. He heard a big bang, and he came running out and saw what happened and yelled to his daughter, call 9-1, there's somebody been hit. And then he told me that uh, he watched, he actually watched this vehicle back up and drive around my brother and took off. And this poor man, all he wanted to do was try to save my brother's life. And he didn't even think to to look and try to get a license plate number because I'm sure he thought, like most of us would, well, the guy's going to just pull up ahead and stop. Yeah. I feel so bad for him. So this individual who hit your brother, killed your brother, according to the witness, backed up, and then drove around your brother and left. Yeah. And left, yeah. So he uh, definitely knew, he or she or whoever, they definitely knew. And by the, you know, the the noise that it made, mm-hmm. you know, definitely this person knew what what happened and he chose to uh, leave my brother for dead. Yeah. G- Jim, what are your concerns about the way the investigation has been handled by Hamilton police? And I talked to them, talked to the lead investigator, uh, Officer Wes Wilson. Mm-hmm. What are your concerns about how the investigation is being handled? I'm sure they're listening to this. And, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not indicting the cops. Um, we're just telling your story. And, and yeah, what's your concern um, about how they've treated you? Well, how they've treated me is not very well. I've, I've been trying. I've been after them right from from the beginning and i i was told by this detective that there is absolutely zero zero physical evidence there is nothing there nothing at all and then i got the, the hamilton media on it and suddenly you know a month ago or so they said oh now we have physical evidence but of course they won't share that with me and uh, earlier in the investigation, I, I had asked this West fellow if he had considered asking the ball players and the ball players' parents. Everybody was at that park, and he had said to me, "We have no evidence that whoever hit your brother was at that ballpark," and that just flabbergasted me. And since then, that's the type of stuff that's been going on. They they say they do things. And after I do my research and homework, 
they don't do things. You wrote a letter to the chief, and that was never answered. No, I wrote a quite a really a really nice letter to to Chief uh, Bergen, I believe his name is, and no, had no response whatsoever from that. Okay, you were also told not to call the officer anymore, to call the sergeant. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's true. I guess I was uh, annoying Mr. Wilson, so. I was told not to call him anymore if I had any issues to call the sergeant. Okay, Jim, what's the story that surrounds the reward? The reward is, uh, well, first of all, I asked if the police would do that, and, and they said they don't do that sort of thing, which is completely false. Uh, so uh, an ex-student, past student of Wayne's, and a friend of the family, he's, uh, he's put up $20,000 for the for a reward to try to find whoever this person is. And uh, the police just, they they won't help. They didn't want anything to do with it. So, so, so Jim, when I spoke with uh, Officer um, Wilson earlier this week, I asked him specifically whether the police had talked to neighbors in that area, right on the center road. And, and uh, Officer Wilson told me, Yes. Uh, first of all, he said they they have the uh, numbers of twenty eight hundred uh, mobile phone numbers that uh, they they they've assembled, and they're checking them to see if there's any correlation or relationship between the numbers. And it was a, either a white SUV or a red sedan that's been mentioned. So they're looking for a correlation between any phone numbers and and such a uh, such a vehicle. Um, they haven't been able to find anything. They uh, they have warrant. They've obtained warrants for the phone towers. They've checked on park activities that night. He, he said there two talked about the conflicting accounts from the witnesses: white SUV, SUV, a red sedan. And then I asked whether they've talked to neighbors on on the street, people who might have seen something. And he said they had had done that. Now you tell me something different. Uh, yeah, I I got news for. Uh everybody. I did it earlier in the summer, and I did it just uh, last week. I went and canvassed everybody on that stretch of Center Road, and not one of them said that they were contacted by the police. And many of them that lived there have had their kids in Wayne School, and they all knew about it and were actually quite... uh, surprised that they hadn't been contacted and didn't understand why. Okay. You also have a friend, and I mentioned this, he's a friend of mine, been a friend of mine, and yours probably longer than mine, but he's been a friend of mine for years, who's a retired Hamilton police officer who worked traffic details, and he's he's curious about the way this is being handled. He's not, he's not impressed with the way no, it's being done. he's not impressed at all, and he's embarrassed and... Uh, he he just keeps shaking his head. He he doesn't understand why they've dropped the ball. Okay, so this is the most important thing in your life, your brother Wayne. It needs to be. We need to find the individual who killed your brother, and you have questions about how the police are doing it. I've said to the officer, "Would you come on the program?" And, and talk about this. And he said, as long as corporate communications, I understand that that's the way police um, departments work. That's just, that's routine. So I'm going to get in touch with them and ask again and ask them to, to respond and come on the program and talk about that. 
So we will, we will, we will do that. I just want to say this to an indiv- the individual who killed your brother. If you are listening, how the hell do you live with yourself? And if you have children and you, your kids are, find out what you've done at some point in your life, you can kiss your relationship with your kids goodbye. Be, stand up and take responsibility for what you've done. That's my feelings exactly, Roy. I just, you know, I, I want him or her to, to do exactly what you just said and, and tell us what happened. Okay. Tell us what happened. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.